You're listening to audio recorded at Mount Air First Christian Church. For more resources or to contact us, look us up at www.mountairfirstchristianchurch.org. This is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded... Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I Am holy. Grass withers, the flower fades, and the word of our God stands forever. This morning we hit a bit of a transition point in the book of First Peter for 12 verses now uh, after Peter addresses his readers, the people who are scattered in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Bithynia, and Asia. He's He now, after introducing them, he goes into this great salvation we've been talking about for several weeks now, right? And we've talked about it, hopefully enough, if you've been here going through it, you can almost recite it yourself. He launches into this rejoicing, this blessing of God for what he has done, that he has, by his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance, right? There's this great treasure, this inheritance that is kept in heaven for us. It's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you who are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be be revealed in the last time. There's this inheritance coming. And then he mentions, right, in this you rejoice, though now for a while you may have been grieved by various trials You go through them so that your faith of greater worth than gold might be refined and result in praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So he's he's caught up in this rejoicing in, in Christ's salvation of his people. We know we can go later on in chapter two where we see that it is we are being ransomed with the precious blood of Christ. That it is this work of Christ on the cross, the shedding of his blood that we celebrate every week when we do communion. The shedding of his blood for the forgiveness of our sins that Peter is overwhelmed in joy over what Jesus has done. And so then we get to verse 13. We read the word, therefore. Therefore, because of all of this, therefore. Now, I want to take a moment this morning to just refresh our minds on something we've discussed many times and is quite popular in in gospel-centered interpretation, reading of the scriptures. But it's, it's absolutely critical in the Christian mindset. And it is this reality that the oughtness of the Christian... This is, these are not good words, but this is the oughtness of the Christian is depends, depends upon and flows out of the boughtness of the Christian. The oughtness of the Christian, what you ought to do, what your life ought to look like flows out of the boughtness of a Christian. What you ought to do flows from the reality that you have been bought. 
Another, the theological way to say this is that the imperatives of the Scripture, what you should do, flow from the indicatives of Scripture, what Christ has done. So when we read through our Bible and we see a place like a, a therefore, Peter's going to give a command. He's going to say to set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you with the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then in the next several verses, we're going to look at this call for holiness, this call to live your life distinctly, this call that says that a Christian lives differently in the world. It's right here in the text. We, we're going to work through this in the coming weeks. But it is very important that we see that these sections are connected with this word, therefore. The, the doxology, the praise of what God has done for his people in Christ is the, is the impetus, it is the force behind then how the Christian walks out their life. Christianity is not meant to be an exhausting religion. And by that I mean um, not that the Christian doesn't spend themselves for the cause of Christ, not that our lives aren't to be given and spent back for him, but that the life of the Christian is not one of spinning yourself in this way of exhausting yourself. How can that be so? How can a Christian not be called to not exhaust themselves? Well, a Christian, we, we can't outgive God. And so the, the work that we are engaged in, this call for the oughtness of the Christian, flows first and foremost from the realization, from the embracing of all that God has already done for us in Christ. Religion likes to flip the script, right? It likes to say, here's all the things that you should do that, so that God will come to your aid and help you. You do this laundry list of things and then maybe God will help you out. That's what religion will give you. World religions across the globe, if you get a world religion book out and read on them, they'll tell you, here are the things that you do to curry or to gain the favor of God. Christianity is really, it's an upside down religion. It comes in and it doesn't say, do all these things to earn God's favor. It says, here's what God has done to put his favor upon you. By his grace, by his mercy, to be received by faith. That is the gospel of grace. The gospel of Jesus Christ. And so the, the way that Christianity comes to us is first the indicative of what Christ has done. And then, having eyes open to see that, the Christian says, how can I live any other way than for this God who saved me? How can, I, how can I not walk out into this world and not be obedient to him for all that he has done for me? And so that, that oughtness, that doing, the living for Jesus is done not in this exhausted sense of I've got to keep this up so that I can win God's favor. It is done from a position of I have God's favor. Jesus loves me. He knows my sin. He knows my failings. He knows my transgressions. He knows, failings makes it sound like, oh, it's like they're whoopsies. He knows my out, out, out and out rebellion. 
He knows the times that I've had the choices laid out in front of me to follow him or to follow my own heart, my own sinful inclinations, and I've chosen sin. And Jesus says, I love you so much, I'm going to go to the cross and take that punishment upon myself so that by simply trusting me, you won't bear the weight of the wrath that you deserve. I took it for you. I took it upon my own back so that by faith, you'd be guarded and given and held for Christ, held to God. And so the Christian, like Peter is saying, is caught up with this gospel and therefore lives their life in light of what God has done. So the imperatives, what you ought to do, the oughtness of a Christian always flows from the botness of a Christian. I live for Jesus not to try to make him love me. I live for Jesus because he has already given his life to save me. He has purchased me with his own blood. Therefore, the imperatives of Christ, what we must do, always flow from the indicatives of Christ, what he has done. Commentator says it this way, the imperatives of Christian living, what you ought to do, the imperatives of Christian living, always begin with therefore. Peter does not begin to exhort Christian pilgrims until he has celebrated the wonders of God's salvation in Jesus Christ. The indicative of what God has done for us and in us precedes the imperative of what we are called to do for him. Another commentator, all of these exhortations are grounded in God's saving work. These exhortations of what you are to live, what your life is to be like, all of them are grounded in God's saving work as explained in verses 1 through 12. Believers are to obey because they are God's chosen pilgrims, because they have been begotten by the Father, because they have an untouchable inheritance, and because of the greatness of their salvation. God's commands are always rooted in his grace. God's commands are always rooted in his grace. I've got the comment before, and I, I, I don't disagree with it sometimes that I can be light on application. Part of that is just a deficiency in my own communication of not getting around to application. But there also is a sense in which I have a conviction partially that says that if you can fill your eyes with the glory of Christ, if your heart can get caught up in what the gospel delivers unto you by faith through Christ, if you can get a heart raptured in all that God is for you, the applications will flow out into every single area of your life. You won't have to hunt for an application. If you are so caught up with God's love for you, when you walk out these doors, you won't help but see the ways that that love for you doesn't impact what you do. What thoughts Therefore, that I want to fill my mind with when my feet hit the floor in the morning are thoughts not of what I must do for Christ today. Those are good thoughts. should have them. We should consider them. They should always flow from, first and foremost, what Christ has done for me. 
The most important thing you can focus on when your feet hit the floor in the morning is to think upon the joy of what Christ has done for you. And out of that joy, yes, then ask the question day in and day out, time and time again, how can I best honor Christ? But it must always flow through from thoughts of joy for all that Christ has done for us. Knowing that when our eyes are set fully upon him, the choices that are then laid out in front of us, they take on a totally different color. So what does Peter say? What is his imperative? This is the indicative, then the imperative. What Christ has done, then what we must do. What is the imperative that Peter says we should do? He calls us to set our minds, our hope, excuse me, to set our hope fully on the grace that, we brought, that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It really is just a summary of what we've ended on at the end of verse 12. That to set your hope fully at the revealing of Jesus Christ. But I want to set away the, the, the word fully there too quickly. To set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In the life of a believer, one who has been ransomed from the dead by the grace and mercy of Christ, there is a full allegiance that it produces. There's a fullness of allegiance and commitment that it produces. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As Jesus says in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. You must love the one and hate the other. You must be devoted to one and despise the other. There is no setting of our hope halfway upon Christ and then halfway upon the things of the world. I want my hope set fully upon the day that Jesus will return and make all things new and I got a lot of things over here that I'd like to see happen as well. And, and if the, I want, I have divided hopes. The life of the Christian is not one lived with divided hopes. Set your hope fully upon the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then he brings these couple of modifiers. Right? The main idea, really the sentence could be, he could be, therefore set your minds uh, set your hope fully on the grace we brought to you. And then he kind of describes how that goes. The preparing your minds for action, the being sober-minded or modifying the setting of your mind upon the hope. What does it mean? What is, what is Peter getting at here when he's talking about to set your mind fully, to, to set your hope fully, to be have minds prepared for action, to have sober-mindedness? To set your hope fully upon him, it requires us to have minds prepared for action, whatever that means, and sober minds as well. Well, this isn't a first, the first place that this kind of idea is brought up in Scripture. You can flip with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 12. The, the comparison, I think the, the similarity here is uh, too hard to ignore. Luke chapter 12 uh, verses 35 through 48. A long section here. Uh, back to the Gospel of Luke. It's been a few years since we've been in Luke. So why not get back into this little passage here. Parable from Jesus. Luke chapter 12. Verse 35. Speaking of readiness. 
He says, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. Verse 36, Luke chapter 12. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast. They're, they're ready so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants who the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. What an incredible king we have. Verse 38, if he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, keep your minds, this is Peter, keep your minds uh, active, ready for action, sober-minded. If he finds them awake, verse uh, 38, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter's calling for ready-mindedness, for sober-mindedness, to keep our minds ready for action because we don't know when that day is. So the Christian ought to be prepared. But let's not, let's not leave this text yet. Verse 41, Peter said, Peter, isn't that interesting? He said, he's heard this. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, ah, my master's delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants to eat and drink and get drunk. There's the sober-mindedness. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and he will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating, he will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. That was Jesus. <laughs> that was Jesus speaking. So that was not Vidal Sassoon, Jesus, bunnies and lambs. That was Jesus uh, meaning business. But you can see Peter is there listening to this parable. And so he says, he's reminding God's people all that he has done. Therefore, prepare your minds for action, being sober-minded. Set your hope fully on Jesus. Set your hope fully upon his revelation. Be ready. Live like it matters. Because it does. It does. Live like it matters because it does. Well, how does this impact us? I think, Peter, this, this interesting turn here is, is, is powerful because what we've been emphasizing kind of in the first 12 verses, just because, I don't know, it's interesting as you preach through something, the own, the, my own suffering and trials that I've gone through, maybe I, we really were emphasizing Peter is lifting up this inheritance to anchor the Christian through the trials of this life. 
And that's absolutely there. That's absolutely true. He's laying these things out to give this church encouragement through the various trials that they face. They're going to be encouraged. How? By knowing they have an inheritance in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the superior treasure. And knowing that gives the believer comfort through the difficulties of life. I love that. Amen. It's where I set my hopes in the, the dark times of life, in the valleys of the shadow of death, that there is a Savior, there is a Redeemer, there is a coming revelation of Jesus Christ where all things will be made new. That's a clear application from Peter. But he goes farther. <laughs> Not only does the hope of Christ encourage the downcast Christian, it also provokes a reordering of priorities. The Christian who has been truly impacted by the glories of the gospel, is not only comforted, they are, is not only comforted, but is also convinced that there's something bigger than themselves to live for. The gospel is a comfort, and I love that it is a comfort. Through cancer, through death, through trials, through scary moments abounding, I am glad that the gospel is a comfort one day, death itself will die. <laughs> One day, if I could personify cancer, cancer will be thrown into the lake of fire and will scream as God condemns it to eternal hell and torment. I rejoice that the day is coming when every tear is wiped from the face of God's people. The gospel is a comfort, but not only that, it is conviction that our lives are meant to be lived for something bigger than ourselves. This Greek term, this preparing your minds for action, it's, the illustration is to gird up the loins of your mind, okay? So that's the actual, our text doesn't say that because we don't want to, in youth group, have to tell kids what girding up your loins, what they have all chuckling junior high kids. Girding up your loins was, you know, you, you, the dress back in the day was a longer gown, a longer garment. And so you, know, you get it from like uh, the prodigal of the son when the, the, the father hikes up his, his skirts uh, at the exodus. They, they eat prepared to 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 leave and so you would take your garment and you would pick it up between your legs and you stick it between your belt so your legs were free to work right you're ready for action to gird up the loins of your mind means to be ready for action to be ready there's a readiness there's a preparedness you're ready to work you're to gird up the loins of your mind and then to be sober minded they're not we are not to wander through life dazed and unaware. You know, that's, that really is a plague upon, I suppose, has been around for forever. But the more that we are lulled to sleep with the entertainment age, with the entertainments that we live with, just going through life constantly dazed, my generation, and yes, I've seen plenty of the older generation stuck on their phone or stuck in front of a TV and just entertained and dazed, just dazed and unaware, Peter is calling for sober-mindedness, preparing your minds for action. And then he says in verses going on in 14, as obedient children, we are to live as God's people. We are to live lives of holiness, of separation. Called out from the world, we could go about, there's, 
what he's talking about in this idea of holiness is there's a sanctification to our life. There's a sanctify, there's a sacredness to our lives that they are no longer lived for ourselves, but they are lived for him. We are to be called out from the world and its ways and into the kingdom of God and his ways. What are we living for? Anything less than the full glory of Christ is short of God's glorious purposes for your life. There is real conviction to be taken up here. There is something to consider for each of us individually and corporately. Corporately, where, what are we going to stand for as a church? Gone are the days of casual Christianity. They do not, they're not, they're not here anymore. Anyone pursuing a faithful biblical Christianity is going to find themselves at odds with the world in an increasing amount of areas. A biblical sexual ethic is no longer permissible. In fact, to hold to such thing actually provokes condemnation in our world today. It's actually seen as uh, detrimental our world has gotten so upside down, it's detrimental to regard marriage as the safe place for such activity. To hold to these things is seen only as hateful bigotry, though the Bible calls it the way of love. But we have to make a decision for who we will be as a group of people claiming the name of a Christian church. What does it mean to be Christ followers? What does it mean to have minds prepared for actions, being sober-minded, setting our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ? Will we consider allegiance to Christ and his ways as our number one priority? Are we truly set apart for him? We have questions to answer corporately, but you have questions to answer individually. We all do. Who is the king of your life? Autonomy is all the rage. Expressive individualism. So radical today that such a, an obvious given thing as your gender is no longer considered given and obvious. But we celebrate expressive individualism to such a degree that autonomy is where it's at. You are your own and no one else and no one can tell you anything otherwise. Not even God, your creator, can tell you anything about yourself. Fine. Okay. I'm fine with you want to go that way. But don't kid yourselves, and we can't kid ourselves, that that has absolutely anything to do with biblical Christianity. That has anything to do with the God of the Bible. If you are his, and I'm speaking about autonomy. (laughs) If you are his, he has bought you for himself. This means we can't even look to the rest of this day and ask, first, what do I want with this day? But what does he want from it? 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore glorify God with your body. The purchase of Christ has incredible implications. The gospel, thank God, it anchors us in the storms of life. But it also is the wind in our sails that directs us in our obedience to Christ and for the spread of his glory to the ends of the earth. May God help us as we set our hope fully upon him, seeking to take refuge in him and finding fuel for living a life that honors him. Let's pray. Oh God, 
as we take, attempt to take seriously the call for holiness in our lives and all the implications that there are. Father, may we see them as glad opportunities to walk in obedience to the God who has saved us. What a joy it is. What a joy it is to live in true freedom. What the world is selling us as freedom of our autonomy is really just slavery to sin. Jesus himself, whoever sins, is a slave to sin. But there is true freedom in being a slave of Christ, in being yours. <laughs> and Father, we pray, I pray this morning that you would do a work in every heart in this place as we prepare to go to communion. Father, it's nothing to take lightly. It's nothing to just go through repetitiously. This is a memorial service of our Savior whose body was broken and blood was shed that we could be forgiven of our sins, that we have been purchased by his blood. And so we share this meal, yes, in rejoicing over our salvation, rejoicing in the forgiveness of our sins, but in acknowledgement that as I share in this broken body and shed blood with these people, I'm confessing, I'm not mine. This Savior is my king. You, Jesus, you are Lord and master of all things. And we gladly, as we share this meal, submit and give ourselves to you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.